This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good morning. You're listening to Pressing Matters, the show where we go beyond the headlines and explore issues driving the press. I'm Philip C. And in today's show, I speak to Dr. James Gomez, Regional Director of the Asia Centre, as we discuss the Centre's most recent report, Internet Freedoms in Malaysia, regulating online discourse on race, religion, and royalty, as we have a conversation on how the online universe has created a unique set of challenges on ensuring internet freedom in this country. A very good morning to you, Dr. James. I hope you're keeping well. Uh, it's a very timely report, yeah? Uh, as the centre wrote this report, as Malaysia witnessed a watershed election, what was the actual key motivation to deal with this, some would say, challenging topic? Uh, thank you uh, very much, Philip, and I'm always very happy to be on uh, BFM. And uh, also, um, BFM, uh, you know, interviewed me uh, on a report that we brought out uh, just months ago, uh, last year in September, uh, on the state of disinformation as Malaysia was gearing up for its elections. Uh, at that time, uh, as we were doing that report, uh, my colleagues and I at the centre noticed uh, even as the wheels turn towards the elections, um, issues related to race and language and religion uh, were beginning to heat up and not in a very good way. So we thought that uh, to watch the elections and as the elections rolled down, to see how this the issue of three R's you know panned out in this election and what it might hold for Malaysian society uh, post election in the next uh, years ahead. So that was the motivation uh, why Asia Center you know took some time to reflect on the three R's both before and during the elections and just to see um, mm -hmm. how that would affect Malaysian society. And I'm, I'm sure when you reflect on these, this conversation, right, I mean, some would say it's a challenge, some would say it's an opportunity that with online dis discourse is that perhaps the way we have conversations on these topics of race, religion and royalty, they're very different from traditional media and distribution channels. Could you identify two, three very critical distinctions in the discourse between online versus traditional media? I'll do two things. First, the difference between the traditional and online media. And second, the difference between uh, what the center has identified as the three types of three R discourse. In terms of traditional and online discourse, discussions of three R were generally there, but they were muted. So proponents of different versions of three R's uh, were articulating it, uh, but the one that you know, got the most play was really the traditional three R's. And I'll explain that in a minute. And this was what was pushed out in the mainstream media. Uh, but there were variations and there are variations. And uh, the other two variations are a progressive notion of the three R's and as well as a kind of a right wing notion of the three R's. So uh, we found that the, both the progressive and the right-wing notion of the three R's, because they didn't quite have that space, mm. traditional media, uh, they quickly found a home online. And with uh, as uh, Malaysian society uh, increased its bandwidth on the online space, both the progressive and right-wing dimensions, you know, caught a lot of play online. So that's the first thing about traditional and online distribution. Uh, 
But now I'll come to a quick definition of the three R's and the three versions. The three R's, race, religion, and royalty, refers to the significant signifiers of the Malay race, Islam, and the monarchy, and its special position as outlined in Malaysia's constitution. Now, these uh, positions have been enshrined uh, for over 60 years as Malaysia gained its independence and champions uh, of of these special positions, uh, the three R's, were really UMNO, uh, which led Barisan National for over six decades. And they were the ones... uh, that uh, were articulating the traditional three R's, the special position of the Malay race, Islam, and the monarchy. Now, uh, as the decades moved, uh, there was a more uh, more demand among Malaysian society for a more equitable articulation uh, of races and religion. Uh, So the uh, issue of multiculturalism came into the core, and it got a political lift uh, when Anwar Ibrahim was sacked from AMNO and he went on later to form Patika Adela. This is where uh, the multicultural discourse uh, got more play, but not at the expense of the three R. So yeah. Anwar uh, Ka'adelan, which went into a coalition as Pakatan uh, Rayat and later as Pakatan Haradpan, uh, continued a notion of the three R's, but which had at its heart equitable justice uh, for all communities, hence a core of multiculturalism. Mm-hmm. The third version is really... Uh, what we have also been seeing slowly built up. And this is in a direct reaction uh, to the decline in AMNO. Uh, AMNO's fortunes in uh, elections in the last different cycles have been declining uh, to its worst uh, electoral performance of only 26 seats this time. And it created a political vacuum. So this gave rise to a more right-wing articulation of the three R's. And uh, Bersatu and PAS, you know, over the last two election cycles, have been gaining tractions and made spectacular uh, seat gains uh, in these elections. I find it very interesting that you painted a very nice picture of how the three R's have evolved uh, over the span of time. But what I think is very clear when you talk about digital sphere is that you create a lot of polarization. But the bigger challenge is, you know, how do you regulate it? As former president, US President Bill Clinton famously mentioned, like trying to regulate the digital realm is akin to nailing jello to the wall. Do you agree? And is that a bad thing? Um, in terms of regulation, I think most of what you know, Bill Clinton said in that metaphorical analysis is really uh, quite relevant. And this is why state constantly, you know, trying to formulate new types of laws, whether it's yeah. uh, for jurisdictions uh, domestically or even trying to, you know, pull out the long uh, arm of the law and even try to uh, have jurisdiction in content articulated overseas or by its citizens overseas. But I think we have gone past the issue of regulation. Really, what we are looking at is content manipulation. Now, because the laws don't work uh, in the way, you know, uh, legislators want it to work. So what you have is a contestation of narratives. So instead, you will find that in the Malaysian case, when it comes to the three R's, regulation is really not doing very much because the three R's and the three versions of the three R's are jostling for dominance and hegemony in the online space. 
And that's what we have seen. And in the last elections, uh, what has happened is the right-wing discourse has had more play, more bandwidth, and it also, you know, rode on the back of a new social media phenomenon, TikTok. Yeah. So as a result, it is not so much regulation, but manipulation uh, by those championing the different types of discourses. When you talk about these, uh, this element that legislation, we have plenty of legislation, right? But what really matters a lot is the manipulation in terms of how we push through the narrative, for instance, blocking websites, content removal, investigation and prosecution. And of course, as you said, the increase in hate speech, as well as the rise of ultranationalist groups, as highlighted in the report. If you contrast Malaysia with its regional peers, how, how are we comparative? Yeah, I think the, the broad phenomena is the same in the sense that uh, states or regimes in power, whether it's the military junta in um, Myanmar or uh, the sultanate regime in Brunei uh, or a one-party um, um, framework such as in Vietnam or to some extent not so dissimilar in Singapore, uh, they all use these features of blocking online sites, removing content, and then, you know, persec uh, persec uh, persecuting and prosecuting individuals and organizations uh, for, you know, uh, putting out content online. So this is the phenomenon. Uh, but what is unique about Malaysia is the rise of the ultra-nationalists who have taken the 3R discourse to another level. And why is this so? The phenomena itself is not uh, very different in the sense that uh, the key feature of the phenomena is that when a dominant force is waning, the case like UMNO uh, in Malaysia, but if we look at also the CCP of Hun Sen in Cambodia, and also to some extent, uh, the People's Action Party in Singapore, as these power houses that have been in place for you know many, many decades, as they wane, and they usually wane after you know uh, four or five decades, there is a vacuum and there's a gap. And you will find, you know, right-wing discourses coming up. You can see that in <clears throat> uh, Cambodia. Uh, you can see that in Singapore. But they do not take a kind of a racial tone, but they take a more of a political ideological tone, mm -hmm. authoritarian versus democracy. Whereas in Malaysia, it takes a very, very ethnic tone. And, and that's also to some extent similar with what's happening in Myanmar. So in, in, in Malaysia, the, the vacuum uh, with the declining power in terms of electoral seats uh, that AMNO has witnessed over the last six decades, and very stark this time, has created a vacuum. Mm -hmm. In that vacuum, it has given birth to the ultra-nationalist discourse. Now, so the ultra-nationalists are usually individuals. They can be uh, religious leaders, uh, preachers, activists, NGOs, and so on. And they have been, you know, populating the online space, trying to manipulate and shift the discourse there. Then you have parties such as Bersatu, um, you know, leading the Perikitan um, National Coalition, uh, together and with this another component, uh, Element Pass. Mm -hmm. They ride and feed on this uh, ultra-nationalist fervor, and then they were able to... Uh, pick up, you know, significant number of seats. So that 
is a unique feature of Malaysia when we compare similar phenomena uh, in the rest of the region. All right, we're going to head into some messages and we come back. Recommendations from the report on how to ensure internet freedom. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. Thanks for staying tuned to Pressing Matters on the Morning Run. Today on the show, we speak to Dr. James Gomez, Regional Director of the Asia Centre, as we discuss the centre's most recent report, Internet Freedoms in Malaysia, Regulating Online Discourse on Race, Religion and Royalty. And now let's turn our attention more to the recommendations that we need to adopt. You know, in your report, you have about 18 recommendations which cover the whole gamut of government, parliaments, suhakam, NGOs and tech companies. And you mentioned that perhaps legislation is not going to perhaps affect so much this regulation so much, but but you actually come up with quite a few recommendations, isn't it, to repeal and amend certain sections and acts. What would you prioritize? Well, first of all, given that Malaysia seeks to be international, our first recommendation, and we say this to, to all states who want to be part of the international community, to rectify you know, the key convention. And in Malaysia case, in relation to this issue in particular, we recommend the ICCPR, the International Convention for Civil and Political Rights, as well as the International Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, because these are international standards. When it rectifies these uh, conventions, it also comes with a condition that they would also align national laws to meet this international standard. With the ICCPR, we are talking more about rights of freedom of expression. In particular, these can be used to ensure <clears throat> internet freedoms. Uh, whereas for the ICED, you know, here we are talking about the issue of equity in society, uh, balance, uh, both in terms of culture and religion. Uh, so these will be international benchmarks. Um, in um, signing up to these uh, conventions, it doesn't really discriminate any community in any way. I think uh, no community's rights would be diminished. Uh, rather, I think they would be better protected, especially if the state aligns its national laws uh, with these international conventions. So that is the first tier. And because, you know, a country signs to these international standards, then, you know, the next step would be really to review the national laws. And that's why, you know, the centre in its report suggested, you know, that some of the laws are either amended or repealed because they are not aligned. Uh, and the laws that um, we ask to, to be repealed are really uh, in direct opposite to international standards. And those that are amended, that we recommend for uh, amendment are those that, you know, can be nuanced better where there could be more justification in terms of why, mm. you know, the provisions are applied in a particular way. We ask that uh, it is applied in an equitable manner across mm. the board without any form of discrimination. In addition to ratifying these international conventions and laws, I mean, tech companies also have a responsibility and the report also advocates for better design, closer collaboration with civil society and better transparency. But in your experience, do you think they will really take on board these recommendations seriously? Well, the tech companies, they are businesses, so they don't like bad PR. Yeah. So as soon as they are called out, uh, they would make uh, the right PR noises and may, uh, demonstrate the right moves. Uh, so what tech companies generally do is they will announce, especially when a situation is very heightened, that they actually take steps. And we've seen that in a couple of years ago, the Rohingya crisis, uh, tech companies uh, actually went on to close some of these military sites. Similarly, in Thailand, military operations were running 
manipulation campaigns. Again, it's, uh, you know, Thai national activists. This was also outed and, and reported. So tech companies, time to time, you know, do that. They also have public affairs departments that work with, you know, CSOs. And there has been, you know, sort of money given out and support given out to fact-checking groups and initiatives. So tech companies, all the major tech companies, have this element within their company, okay. public outreach, and they have given rise and birth mm-hmm. to the range of fact-checking initiatives around the region and world. However, we, we see some headwinds this year and, and, and in the short to medium term because tech companies are, are getting a hit. A, a lot of people have been uh, laid off across the board. Yes, most of them are engineers and people who, uh, who service um, the the platforms, especially when it grew big during the pandemic years, and some argue this is just a bit of a cutback uh, from that time. Uh, however, uh, our sense is the budgets and staff for the public affairs departments are also taking a hit, and it's not unusual to hear tech companies, you know, telling their standing partners in civil society, "Look, you know, we like to do a lot, but but this is uh, all the dollars we have, and so on and so forth." So we see that tech companies will listen because it's in their interest uh, to to manage bad PR, but how much they can really do uh, remains to be seen. And uh, you know, tech companies that we, we use, you know, uh, currently right. uh, legacy companies, however, you know, within a few years, I think some of them will be replaced and we will have new new innovations uh, as we're already seeing now. So there is the will, but perhaps the resources may be challenging in the future. I, I do want to ask you whether you are optimistic that this new unity government will be able to move and progress with some of these recommendations that you've made. Do you think that this government that, that is basically a coalition will have the gumption to make some of these changes? The recommendations in the report, they, they are based on international standards. So the international standards really, you know, call for a more equitable society in, in all sense of the word. However, the three R's remain uh, dominant in Malaysia. Now, with the unity government uh, and having AMNO as a component member of the unity government, I think the capacity for Pakatan Harapan to, to push through its version of a more progressive free R is stalled. And that's the outcome of these elections. Now, Pakatan Harapan learned its lesson in 2018 when it came into power briefly uh, on that progressive 3R rhetoric. And it started in policy terms to pluralize its uh, cabinet and, you know, introduce uh, some changes, but it, uh, including agreeing to, to ascending the ISAT. However, you know, there was a big pushback and eventually the government collapsed. So this time, it will not uh, make the same mistake. Uh, more so where you have, you know, AMNO in, in the pact and, uh, and the MOU really has reinforced the special position of Malays, Islam and the monarchy, which means we are very much going to be uh, playing the 3R 
traditional narrative. I think the contestation and the longevity of the government would really depend on the pushback they might get from the right-wing three Rs. For the moment, things seem to stay settled, perhaps up to the state elections in the next few months, given that you also have witnessed an uh, AMNO internal purge. Until such time, those purged, you know, uh, think about, you know, how they want to move and if they would throw their lot with the right-wing movement. I I think we have a bit of breathing room uh, for the current unity uh, government to march ahead until the state elections. Then I think it's another uh, timeline that we need to take stock. So I think the unity government will constantly be on its toes and has to be reviewed politically uh, every time we reach some kind of a political milestone. Martin Luther King reminded us that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. In the case of internet freedoms in Malaysia, when you take a step back and reflect the past 10 to 15 years, have we progressed or regressed? Well, I would say uh, Malaysia has progressed uh, in many sense of the word, uh, both in terms of having access. I think uh, access uh, to the community is quite good, actually, compared by global standards. It's the rights of expression after you get access, uh, that's the key. So I think that's where work needs to be done. Uh, in terms of the three R and the shift to the right wing, I mean, no, that's a bit of kind of a regression. However, it is also generational. Um, so I expect as this generation passes and we get on to the next, uh, we will see some progress because in, in, in the larger context, you know, Malaysia is uh, not even a middle-sized nation. You know, 38 million, it's small, it's fairly multicultural. You have Thailand in the north, and Singapore in the south. Malaysians travel globally, they study globally. Uh, so they will be imbued by the sense of multiculturalism elsewhere. So Malaysia cannot operate in uh, isolation. You have a silo uh, mentality that the three R's, the right-wing three R's and the traditional three R's has created, but it can't go on forever. So that's the hope. So it's a generational issue. You know, Malaysian society will just have to write it out. And I think it's also um, looking towards the passing of the old guards among the political elite. And then I think you will uh, see, you know, more progress. So overall, I'm helpful, but I think it's important uh, to call out what are some of the features affecting Malaysian society because it does help, it does impact uh, the social health of the community. That was Dr. James Gomez from the Asia Centre. This has been Pressing Matters on the Morning Run. Coming up next is the 10am News Bulletin, followed by Enterprise, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.